No one likes to be left out. Not a one of us. You think back to your childhood memories, maybe the ones that we just assumed not uh, discuss or get into this morning, but you think of those times on the playground at recess. They were picking teams. It didn't go so well for you, did it? No one likes being left out. You think in terms of, of social uh, engagements that perhaps you have been a part of, or had the misfortune of being a part of, uh, even perhaps recently, in which you were sort of on the outside, on the outskirts, not included, left out. No one likes being left out. And whatever circumstances that may be taking place, it's always pointed to some kind of dysfunction within that group, within that gathering, that somebody would be pushed to the outside and not really embraced by uh, the whole that's gathered there. No one likes being left out. Well, here's the thing. In Christ church, um, in Christ church, no one should be left out. Okay? But many often are. Many often are. And in particular this morning, there's one group we need to be, uh, put our attention towards, give our attention towards, and that is the singles amidst us are often left out. And if you think about it, that's really short-sighted and at best foolish. If current trends in our society mean anything in terms of the mean marrying age continuing to rise and rise and rise, which means over time there are going to be more and more singles within the church, at best that's at least short-sighted and foolish to not embrace the singles amidst us. But it's far worse than that. That. It's just wrong. It's not just foolish and short-sighted. It's just wrong. Because the local church is called to be a family. It's called to be a community. And in Christ's church, no one is to be left out. Ever. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, we're pushing on in this service, a series through the gospel of uh, Matthew. Uh, we're picking up right where we left off last week, uh, Matthew 19. We're honing in on verses 10 through 12, but to have a sense of the flow of the argument, of the discussion, the dialogue that's taking place there, and why Jesus' disciples say what it is that they say, we need to back up just a little bit into what we were looking at last week. So I'm going to Start at verse 8. So Matthew 19, that's the first gospel, first of the four. It's the first book in the New Testament. If you're still trying to find it, it's Matthew. That's the book. The chapter is 19, starting in verse 8, reading on through verse 12. Hear now the word of God. He, that is Jesus, said to them, that's the Pharisees, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Well, let's pray together for a moment. 
Lord, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119 that blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep your testimonies, who seek you with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, who walk in, in your ways. This is a beautiful word. It is in complete accord with our design and our intended function. Of course it is, because the one who made us spoke it, and the one who spoke it made us. All of it. Every bit of it. We ask that you'd give us ears with which to hear this morning. Uh, we thank you that when you speak, uh, you speak truly. You also speak comprehensively to every area of life. Nothing left out. And we are grateful for that. If things were left to chance, if things were left to us, it would be all the worse. We thank you for this guidance. We thank you for this instruction. We pray that you would instruct our minds and hearts over these next few minutes. And we pray in your name. Amen. C.S. Lewis some years ago wrote an essay entitled The Sermon and the Lunch. And the background for the, uh, the story, I'm not actually sure if it's true, it's at least written from this perspective, that he attended a worship service where the pastor is preaching a sermon on the family. And then immediately following the service, he goes home with the pastor's family for lunch. And he then begins to, to relay from there, and you know names are listed, of course. Uh, he begins to relay from there how, how this troubled him, those two experiences put together, because there just wasn't much cohesion between the sermon that the pastor preached and the lunch that the pastor hosted. There just wasn't much binding the two together. And it wasn't just the, the inconsistency between precept and practice but it was also something of the sentimentality of the precepts that were conveyed in the sermon and just how disconnected they were from reality, just how naive it all was. And so it troubled Lewis, this whole encounter that he had. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, why I want you to think about that in Lewis's experience there. The gospel message, we've been talking about this for weeks, the gospel message is a message of the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. It is a story of a world made good gone bad. It is a story of a treasonous act, the story of a tyrant seizing control, the story of the one true king coming back and the rising of his kingdom, the story of his people called to serve like an insurgency, like dropped in behind enemy lines, an advanced force waiting for the full invasion to come. That's the message of the kingdom. That's good news. That's the message of the gospel. It's a transformative message when you understand, when you're really hearing what it has to be. How could it be anything but that? Where Jesus is saying he has come to reclaim everything, to renew everything, all things, including us, thank God, quite literally, everything is impacted, everything is transformed, everything is affected, and that's what bothered C.S. Lewis that day. 
You see? Because those relationships were not transformed. There was no reality between what was professed and what was practiced, between what was spoken and what was lived. And that is simply not the way it's supposed to be. The gospel, the the message of the kingdom is meant to go broad and deep. Nothing left out, nothing excluded. Who we are and how we live, nothing can remain the same. Nothing can remain untouched, including our relationships. Now, we've been seeing the last several weeks, as we've been delving into Matthew 18, how that is certainly the case, that our relationships simply in view of the coming of the kingdom cannot remain the same or as everyone else around us. And that trend, that theme continues right on over into Matthew 19. Jesus has called us to be a kingdom community that demands, it it not just implies, it, it means we have to approach all of our relationships in a whole new way. Last week we saw how that impacts and transforms marriage and divorce. This week we see how it impacts, transforms singlehood. Jesus has called us to be a kingdom community. That means we have to approach all of our relationships in a whole new way, including singleness. We're going to look at this from three different perspectives as we're looking at this text here this morning. It's there in your outline. The first thing is Jesus's perspective on singleness. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is the dignity of singleness. And then the third is the struggle. The struggle of singleness. And it's all there. It's all there in just those verses that we read just a moment ago. His perspective, the dignity, and the struggle. Let's look at this together. Uh, In turn, as we're looking at the text, again, starting in verse 10, reading on through verse 12, Jesus' perspective on singleness, if I can prompt it this way, why is it that some are single? What's behind that? What's going on? Whether it's, you know, for the whole of their lives or for a season. Why is it that some are single? This text speaks to that. Starting in verse uh, 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Okay. The first thing that Jesus points, well, that we see implied here, but it's worth noting, is that one of the reasons that someone may not be married is a fear of marriage. And you see that in the exchange between Jesus and the disciples. The disciples have been listening in to this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. That's why we needed to back it up just a little bit in the last week's text. And the disciples had been listening, and closely so, in how Jesus has raised the bar regarding the sanctity of marriage. And so their response is, well, it's too great a risk. We can't chance it getting married. It would be far better, far safer, far saner just not to get married. That's their response. That's a fear, a fear of marriage. And Jesus says, well, you're half right. You kind of got it. 
the idea being, um, if you can't, if you're not all in, if you're not all in with this covenantal commitment to this other person, then you're right. It's better for you not to get married. The fact is, many are terrified. The disciples were at that moment. At least the unmarried ones were. Terrified by the idea of a permanent, exclusive, comprehensive commitment to another person. It's a fear then, it's a fear now. That's one of the reasons. We see it there implied in the text. But that's not the only reason. Of course it's not. There are others, and we see that more explicitly here in this passage. And that moves us from just a fear of marriage to an inability to marry. Perhaps you want to, but you can't for whatever reason. And, and, and part of the reasons, you know, just under, just, well, so I'll speak specifically to what you can see here and how that kind of points to some broad categories as well. So Jesus speaks of someone being a eunuch from birth. Perhaps they're born with a genetic disorder of some kind such that they simply cannot engage in sexual intimacy therein making marriage pretty difficult. Okay, that would be one. Or maybe it's not at birth, maybe it's since birth. And perhaps they've suffered some, as a, 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 made a eunuch, suffered some terrible tragedy, perhaps, you know, in the context of a king's court, we'll talk about that later, or on the battlefield or some kind of accident, or perhaps it's broader. They want to marry, but they're unable to. Because of someone else and some other party, some, something else outside of their control, they want to but are not able to. This is not fear. This is inability. They're blocked from it. Okay? That's reason number two. Reason number three, they've chosen not to. They have chosen not to. We see that very clearly. It's a decision. They have decided figuratively, to make themselves a eunuch. Certainly figuratively, not literally, not physically. That would be to do gross dishonor to the body that God has made that ought to be treasured and cared for. But certainly he's not speaking of it in a literal sense. But figuratively, they have decided intentionally to give up marriage and family in order to uh, give themselves wholeheartedly, comprehensively, and exclusively to God's service. Uh, that is a calling. That is a gift. It's not for everyone. It's for some, but it's not for all. This would have been very unusual in first century Jewish society, by the way. Jesus as a single man stands out. John the Baptist, same thing. Paul, same thing. This, this was unusual to have the leader of your groups, the leaders of your groups, uh, as single men in, in that context. This is Jesus' perspective on what's going on. How is it that we see, how is it that could be that some are indeed not married? Now, before we go into the second point, I just want to, I think it's worth noting here, here now, the, these reasons that Jesus points out for us should check the assumptions that some of us make about single people. And convict us in some cases. Just the, the uh, presumptuous ideas or, 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 or conclusions that we come to as why someone that we're thinking of or have met is, is not married. You know, it may not necessarily be because they're irresponsible or immature 
or in a, unable to attract another person. Or maybe they're same-sex attracted. It may not be any of those, but that's where we go, isn't it? It may not be because they're too picky, because they're too choosy, but that's where our minds go. And that's none of those are the options that Jesus lists here as perspectives that we ought to have as to why people are single. There ought to be some benefit of the doubt given here. Uh, we are called, again, to be a kingdom community. We are called to be a kingdom community. We have to then approach our relationships, all of them, in a whole new way, including singlehood. Now, let's press on. The second point, not just Jesus' perspective on singlehood, but the dignity of singlehood. And this is huge. This is absolutely huge. Let me start in verse 11 and then skip down to verse, the last part of verse 12. But he said to them, Jesus says to the disciples, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Skipping down to the last part of verse 12. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. You need to recognize that among the world religions and approaches to marriage and singlehood, Christianity stands almost completely unique in how it, how it regards the calling to marriage and singlehood and exalts both of them. Both of them. Now, I'm going to just try and, and be really broad, really broad, and, and to compare and contrast first the world's views and the Bible's views. Okay, so the world's views in traditional cultures Marriage is lifted up and exalted as the end-all, be-all thing because of the, the allegiance to blood, family ties, and the felt necessity of having heirs to carry on the line and the name. And so with that, there is great pressure to marry. That's what you see in traditional cultures. That's really not where we live so much today. But in many parts of the world, and perhaps in, you know, some parts, fading parts of our own culture, you can see that. But it's moving over from traditional cultures to non-traditional cultures. That it's not a pressure to marry. It's not marriage is exalted. It's singlehood is exalted. Marriage is thought of as something optional, an outdated concept that is really associated with being bound up and, and a lack of freedom, a lack of choice, a constraint, ball and chain. Singlehood is viewed more and more as freedom, an opportunity to realize your potential. Monogamy, please. Marriage is holding you back. Increasingly, that is the, the sentiment, the idea in our own culture. Okay? The Bible has a completely different perspective on both of those. It exalts both, but for very different reasons than, than either would think. Exalting marriage, exalting singlehood as well. First of all, uh, exalting uh, marriage held up, held up because of its high and holy purpose to serve as a living uh, reflection on earth of the church's relationship with Jesus and that love bond. And for that reason, it is exalted in the Christian worldview. That said, it, it's not the ultimate thing. As we read from 1 Corinthians 7, just a little while ago, there are, can I put it this way, disadvantages to being married. 
And Paul speaks to that very candidly, trying to just ground his readers. That's marriage held up. Singleness is held up just as much because of, and it's interesting, there's some parallel to the non-traditional view because of the freedom, the unimpeded freedom to give oneself to the family and work of God. And that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 7, absolutely. Again, though, it's not the end-all, be-all thing. It's not the ultimate thing. There are still disadvantages, to be sure, in, in this calling, this gift as well, not the least of which is, are simply the practical, realistic, uh, so, the, having to solo shoulder just the daily responsibilities of life and then the increasing temptation to loneliness. But both are lifted up. The Bible offers us a very balanced view of these two gifts, of these two ways, of these two paths, of these two callings. Both are lifted up very highly, and Christianity stands unique, stands out in this, in this way, in its perspective. Let me put it this way. According to Scripture, marriage and singleness are each their own thing. And that's an important distinction to make. Singleness is not just not being married. Understand? That's to define it in a negative way. It's what you're not. That is not the Bible's perspective on this at all. Think about outer space for just a moment, all right? How do we think of outer space as a vacuum, you know, this in, near infinite space between planets and moons and stars and everything out there, this void, that, that which is not the planets and the moons and the stars? That's not singleness. Singleness is not outer space. That which is not planets, moons, and stars. If you want to think of it in terms of outer space, one planet is marriage, one planet is singlehood. It's, it's, they're both their own thing, their own substantive callings and gifts and need to be thought of in that way. According to Scripture, marriage and singlehood are each equally good with distinct benefits and challenges. They're equally good with distinct benefits and challenges. Neither one is ultimate. Neither one is our, is our destination. If I can put it this way, marriage rightly has been described by no few as being penultimate, meaning it's not the ultimate thing. It's a sign and a foretaste of the ultimate thing, that which we await. But it's not that which we await. It's a sign and foretaste of that which we await. Now, that's critical to understand. Because if, if we treat marriage as an ultimate thing, married people, you've put far too much pressure on that relationship. It, it will collapse under the weight that you are putting upon it if you treat marriage as the ultimate thing. Singles. Your dream of being married, you're putting way too much weight in terms of expectations upon that. It is not what you think. It is not what you think. It is a penultimate thing meant to point towards something greater, far, far greater. We're called to be a kingdom community. Jesus has called us to be a kingdom community that demands 
that we see, that we approach, that we engage in all of our relationships in a completely new way, including singlehood. All right, so we've looked at this in terms of the perspective, what Jesus says about this, in terms of, well, how could this be in certain cases? Uh, we've looked at this in terms of the dignity and how we're, it, he holds up both callings, both gifts. Last thing is this, and that is the struggle. The struggle. And we could talk in a different sermon about the struggle of marriage. That's a different sermon. I'm going to talk just a little bit about the struggle of singlehood here for a moment. Verses 11 and 12. Let's just read that again uh, here from Matthew 19. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Did you notice the repetition? Eunuch. Five times in, it's, it's mentioned in verse 12. This graphic image that even in that day wasn't just mentioned willy-nilly to say nothing of our own. Five times Jesus is using that image as a way to impress upon us something about the call to singlehood. Now, it's important just to kind of take a step back here and think through, what was that? In the ancient Near East, a castrated male would have been a trusted, loyal, compliant, regarded as faithful and able to be entrusted especially with the women of the court. In fact, my understanding is the Greek word, if you break it down, means, um, what was it, guard of the bedroom. Now, and even, by the way, even if, uh, and there were certainly were cases in which such an individual could serve in an authoritative capacity, most often they were excluded from society. Cut off, if I can put it that way. And that's the image that Jesus is using here. The image of the eunuch. Now think about what, what that implies. The eunuch, just, just think about what that person, their life, it, it, it connotes loss. The loss of something significant for something even greater, or something beyond themselves, a greater cause. That's a graphic image. It's also a needed, image, uh, needed message. The eunuch in that day, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, is giving up on the hope in a way of a, of a certain future. Not just of sex, but of heirs, of offspring. And in that culture, in that day, that means sort of putting yourself out there, a trust fall, if you will, because you don't have now the guarantee of the safety net of the cast of characters to support you in your advanced age. It's quite an image that's being used here with some intentionality regarding the, the, the kingdom community and the person called to singlehood. And this is it's a graphic image. It's a needed message. I'll say it's first for the larger church. Later on in 1 Corinthians, we read from 1 Corinthians 7 a little while ago. Later on in 1 Corinthians, when you get to chapter 12, 
I'm not going to go there right now. I encourage you to look this up later. Uh, Paul, uh, apostle of Jesus, is talking about how the church, the local body, is meant to be just that, a body. A body made up of, of many members, none of which are dispensable. All of which are essential. Do you see how the larger church needs to grapple and, and treasure that? All members. Marital status does not matter. All members to be embraced and cherished in every possible way. That's a message that the larger church certainly needs to hear regarding all this. But in terms of singles in particular, to hear and to know and to embrace the plan and promises of God. Now, we all need that. But speaking specifically to singles, the, to know and embrace the plan, the perfect, beautiful plan and promises of God. Just a little later in Matthew 19, you actually see this explicitly spoken to. The last two verses of Matthew 19. Listen to what Jesus says. Verses 29 and 30. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Uh, that take, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a paradigm shift. It's a perspective that, that we don't tend to have, but we need to have. It's a, not an immediate horizon, but a further horizon of what's really real. Truly true and assured. And, and, and assured. And, and it, presses, it presses us as we think about that all the more towards what uh, the, the uh, 17th, 17th century English pastor Jeremiah Burroughs so beautifully described as the rare jewel of Christian contentment. 1 Corinthians 7, Megan read that a little while ago. No, excuse me, that was Stephen read that a little while ago. Anyway, one of you read it. Um, from 1 Corinthians 7, go with me back to, if you will, it's, it's not, not the text in your bulletins, so you have to actually have to turn there. So in 1 Corinthians 7, it's the paragraph immediately preceding what was read just a little while ago, okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, the Corinthian letters are, are after the Gospels and after Acts and after Romans. 1 Corinthians 7, and in this paragraph that, again, sits right in front of, right prior to what we read a little while ago, there's this refrain that you hear as Paul is making this case to trust in the promises and the plans of the Lord. Listen, and you see it three times. I'm not going to read the whole paragraph, just the three times you hear it. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that God has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers and, and brothers and sisters, it's kind of broad, uh, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. It's, it's not a call. He's not saying there, understand the context, he's not saying just be stuck. Stay in your misery. It'll be fine. Get over it. That's not his point. He's saying as long as you're there, be content where you are, and if things change, okay, that's another thing, but contentment, the rare jewel of Christian Contentment. This is, this is the struggle of singlehood. It's also the secret to thriving in it. 
trusting in God's perfect plan and promises for us. And that, of course, requires a new way of seeing. The ability to see through lonely circumstances with the eyes of faith. To see through lonely circumstances with the eyes of faith, knowing that our resurrected King, Jesus, is with us. Is with us. And he knows us and can care for us far, far, far better than any frail, fallen, mortal being ever will or could. The eyes of faith, the eyes of hope, the ability to see through lonely circumstances, the ability to see through dim prospects, with the eyes of, of hope, knowing that, whether or not, and we don't know, you don't know, I don't know, whether or not Prince or Princess Charming is ever going to come. But we do know this. The king and his kingdom is. And this life is a blink. And that is eternity. And that is so much greater. I mentioned Lewis, that, that one essay, there's another, the weight of glory. A counterweight. A counterweight that so far exceeds the pittance of sand on the scale. And over here we're talking tons. A counterweight of glory that is to come. The eyes of faith to see, the eyes of hope to see. This Jesus and his plans and his purposes and his promises that it's not just wish fulfillment and not just the power of positive thinking, but real, gritty, truly real. Truly he has called us to be a kingdom community, all of us which demands that we look at everything, including our relationships, in a whole new way, including this matter of calling the gift of singlehood. And I land on this, just end with this. Maybe this question may be coming to some of you at this point. Why don't we ever talk about this? Why is this the first sermon I've ever heard on the topic of singlehood? I'll confess it's the first one I've ever preached. Been here 15 years. Let me give you some answers on that. I've been thinking about that a little bit this past week. Why? Why is that? I don't mean this to be an excuse, just an explanation. Kind of give you a little glimmer of insight here. Uh, the first thing is that most pastors are married, and we have long forgotten what it was like to be not, to be single. So we're just not sensitive to it. True confession. Second thing, the drumbeat. The drumbeat of demands. Weddings take up a lot of space. I got called to do an out-of-state, well, out-of-town wedding just this past week, likely coming up next spring. 
They're coming all the time. Weddings, all the planning that goes into it, and the premarital counseling, and oh, then the crisis counseling that comes after the wedding. <laughs> Takes up a lot of space. The drum beat is what gets your attention. I don't mean that as an excuse. I'm just trying to give an explanation. It's kind of what's going on. But one in 15 years? Huh. We as a church are not to understand ourselves to be just a center for worship and learning and service. We're not called to be a kingdom academy. We're called to be a kingdom community. And we should be what we are. And it's a terrible thing when you're not what you are. When you're living in denial. Whether that's in terms of identity or geography or purpose and calling and vision and all that. It's a terrible thing to live in, in, in denial. This text demands of us, all of us, that we learn and grow and what it means to invite um, and enter into one another's lives and homes. I'm going to be hearing more about community groups in the coming weeks. Um, demands that we learn to invite and enter into one another's lives and homes. And some of us are better at that than others. We all need to learn. We all need to, to grow in these things, and what it means to encourage one another in these things. No matter our marital status, the Lord has called us to be a kingdom community. And that means approaching all of our relationships in a whole new way. Marriage and singleness. Let's pray together. Lord, you are the one true king. Come to reclaim what is yours, and all is yours. Nothing is excluded, nothing is left out, nothing is cordoned off. All is to be enveloped and embraced and transformed. The ordinary, the everyday, how we think of ourselves, how we think of each other, our relationships... The coming of the kingdom is a beautiful message, and it is true. You have indeed made us to be something so different, so sweetly beautiful, something that is meant to stand out like a city on a hill, a light in the midst of, of darkness. May we be what we are. May the single folks in our midst this morning know themselves to be treasured and prized, Trusting you for however long the season would be for this gift and this calling. Help them to rest in your care and your plan and your promises and help us to encourage them in that in every way. That's what we're all called to be and to do. We pray in your name. Amen.